Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the word. One thing you can be praying for is that... Um, I got a call this afternoon. Actually, I returned the call. I think he could. Did he call here, Sandy? Putting you on the spot. He didn't call here today? The KHCV guy. He did. Okay. So I knew somebody sent me that message. I just didn't know who it was. Um, but he had called before I went to California, and I put him off because I was going to California and some other things. This is the program director at KHCV, and they were asking me to do a little 15-minute Thing for prayer every week they have a uh, short little segment on prayer each day from about 10 to 10:15, followed by some uh, music. So um, I was going to record that. They initially wanted me to record something for January, but the pastor who was to do it in November did not pre-record his, and he called this morning saying that he had the swine flu. And so when I returned the guy's phone number, phone call finally this afternoon, he had just learned this, and he said, you know, I really hate asking you to do this. So I will be re- pre-recording that session at 1030 tomorrow, so you can uh, be in prayer for my prayer lesson tomorrow that I will. Fifteen minutes shouldn't be too hard. The hard part is figuring out what not to say. Some of you caught that very quickly. The others of you were. All right, so let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that we can come together this evening, that we have this time to study your word, to reflect upon who you are and reflect upon your character And as we study future events, it's not so much to satisfy our curiosity, but to understand what you have revealed, because this book of Revelation is just as important as any other book in the Scripture, and it is significant for our understanding that we can look at this and see how you tie all of history together. And, Father, that's important because each of us in our own lives is part of history. We have our own history And it's not just some random event that occurs as Darwinism teaches, but that there is a plan and purpose for each of us, and we all have a a place in that plan of yours. And so as we study your plan as it relates to other aspects, other peoples, other times, we learn things that also apply to our own lives. Now we pray as we continue our study this evening that we will be Uh, able to focus and concentrate to put aside all the worries and cares and frustrations and distractions and aches and pains and everything else that uh, interferes with our concentration so that we can really focus on your word and God the Holy Spirit will make these things clear to us and we can have a greater appreciation for your majesty and your sovereignty. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Revelation chapter 17. We finished up 16 couple of weeks ago, I believe, and I, um, at least I think we did. Something tells me in the back of my mind that there was a question or two that I didn't quite resolve, but maybe somebody will remember that, and uh, I'll get that completed next time. 
But we're shifting from the seven bold judgments that were the focus of the last two chapters to the detailed look at how that comes to fruition at the in the final days. And this is typical of the way John writes and describes these end times. There will be these vast sweeping uh, chapters that cover a lot of territory, and then he comes back and focuses on one thing. Very typical of Hebrew writing style, that uh, just as we see in Genesis chapter 1, you cover the seven days of creation, and then chapter 2 comes in and focuses on just the details of the sixth day of creation. And that is a standard uh, way in which Hebrew writers would would describe things. So in the previous chapters, we see those bold judgments that I believe occur near the end of the tribulation, the last six months, maybe nine months. It certainly seems like things go very rapidly once that first bold judgment begins to pour out. And then it culminates in the battle of Armageddon, the great day of God the Almighty, as the armies of the world are called together to battle in a place called Armageddon, which we studied the last time. And then there is this uh, depiction in verses 17 to 21 of how the entire earth is devastated by the cosmic, uh, cosmological, astro-geophysical catastrophes that take place, a massive earthquake on the earth that flattens all the mountains and that uh, wipes out all of, sends out massive tsunamis that wipe out all of the islands. So that verse uh, 20 says that every island fled away and the mountains were not found. So it's not just a matter of the uh, military campaign itself that focuses on Jerusalem, but Along with that, in those final days, there is this truly earth-shattering, literally earth-shattering event that takes place along with this hail from heaven that falls upon men in verse 21, uh, each hailstone weighing about a talent, that's about 100 pounds. And men continue to blaspheme God and to blame him and to curse him throughout this whole period. The thing that I'm impressed with as we've gone through this is just the implacability of the pagan, the unbeliever, the unbeliever who will never trust in God. There are unbelievers who will, but they're not who will trust God in the tribulation, but they're never described as earth dwellers. The term earth dwellers refers to those who never do respond, and there will be many of them. And I think that that's hard for some of us to, to understand. I know that some of you are very optimistic and I know that uh, I talk to people now and then, and they say, "Well, I just don't you just think that that so and so must have been a believer." I mean, look, they they grew up at such and such a time and uh, such such a place in history, and they went to church. They would have heard the gospel. And there's this this sense that we that that we sort. I hear some people default to a position that, oh, of course they would have heard. And uh, you see the same thing during uh, during tribulation. In fact, you, when I was in um, when I was in uh, Virginia this last week and I was chatting about this same thing with Ed Heinsohn and he was laughing because uh, Tim LaHaye has always held this view that just, you know, almost everybody in the millennium gets saved. And yet there's a, a verse in Revelation chapter uh, 20 there dealing with the Gog and Magog re- re- revolution that takes place when Satan is released and they're just... Millions and millions of people at the end of the millennium in perfect environment who go to rally around Satan's banner and uh, rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just have a hard time understanding that, don't you? But that's because you've forgotten how evil those unbelievers are and how implacable the sin nature is. And we have this tendency sometimes as believers to think, oh, there'll be so many, they'll respond, but they don't. And we need to wake up a little bit because we're living in a time when we see the increasing arrogance and the increasing uh, bravado of so many unbelievers in our world that are saying things about Christians and Christianity that would have never been said even 10 years ago. And they're coming out of the woodwork and saying this, and they're being ele- people who say these things are being elected to public office. 
And the more that that happens, the more it's going to increase. It's just going to pick up speed and deteriorate faster and faster. So we dare not stick our head uh, heads in the sand. Now, that's how things are going to end at verse 21. It hasn't gone into the details of the battle, the campaign of Armageddon, literally. But it gives that summary in the sixth and uh, seventh bold judgments. And then chapters 17 and 18 shift our focus again, much like you're watching a film. And for a while you're on this scene and you're following this part of the plot. And now you're going to shift over to another part of the plot. And in chapters 17 and 18, we're going to get into the description of the collapse of the empire, the headquarters of the Antichrist, and it is under the uh, title of the collapse and the fall of Babylon the Great. Now, as we need to step back from this just a minute to be aware of one of the major uh, interpretive problems that we have to face or address when we get to this chapter, and that is just what is meant by Babylon. Is this talking about a political Babylon in chapter 17 or an economic Babylon in chapter 17 and then chapter uh, 18 focuses on spiritual Babylon. And that was an approach that was taken by many dispensationalists down through through the years that uh, Babylon here is not to be taken literally, but it is simply speaks of the political dimension of the world system that unites under the Antichrist, probably in Rome, and that Babylon was just a code word for Rome, and that the chapter 18 describes the spiritual apostasy, the religious system that unites the world in opposition to God during the uh, tribulation period and uh, the kingdom of the Antichrist. However, the problem with that is that nowhere in the scripture is the word Babylon ever used in a non-literal sense. It has a symbolic value, but it has, but without losing its literal significance. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that when you talk about, for example, in American history, we can talk about George Washington. And George Washington, just the invoking his name, communicates a certain symbolic value about uh, integrity and about the, uh, as a representative of the founding fathers of this country and the founding principles of this country. So he has a symbolic value, but that doesn't take away from his literal historical reality, does it? So something that is literal and historical can also have a symbolic meaning. It's not an allegorical meaning, and it's not spiritualizing the text. When you allegorize or spiritualize, what you do is you take something in the Scripture and say, well, it really doesn't have any literal, literal historical, actual meaning. It just has a spiritual meaning. That's what allegory does. So this isn't allegory. It's not spiritualizing the text. It's not uh, Babylon isn't code word for Rome. It is a always used in Scripture to refer to the uh, city that was built on the Euphrates River. And it unfortunately many um, many teachers, expositors of the word who believed in dispensationalism and a literal interpretation of scripture sort of hiccuped at that point and they no longer they they just started interpreting that in a non uh non-literal way so we have to go back and evaluate some of the evidence in scripture because the significance of babylon is is profound and so we have to look at that and take take some time to go back and and uh, see how that fits together because this ties all of scripture together the first major scene of rebellion of the human race as a race takes place at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And that becomes a symbol of the kingdom of man and man's rebellion against God all the way down through history, and it gets defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the story, at the end of the tribulation period. And so it is tying together all of these loose ends and completing judgments on human rebellion that have been postponed due to God's 
uh, due to God's grace. So we have to look at some of those uh, questions, and it will help us to understand this, these two chapters uh, a little easier. And if you haven't ever been exposed to teaching where the Babylon of these two chapters is taken literally, then it will give you something to think through and something to reflect on. Last year at our uh, at the pastor's conference back in March, uh, Dr. Andy Woods, who just completed his doctorate in, uh, at Dallas Seminary in, uh, in May, gave an excellent presentation, gave an excellent paper on uh, the literal meaning of Babylon and Revelation. It was uh, a very good paper. So uh, you may be able to get access to that and read, uh, read through that in a little more detail. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Revelation 17.1. Revelation 17:1 we read then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying to me come i will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters now this introduces the next two chapters the next two chapters are going to focus on how god is going to uh, bring a his judgment in time on the on Babylon itself and on the entire religious, economic, political system that uh, of, of the human race that sets it itself against against God. One of the, the, the seven angels, of course, refer directly to the context of the seven angels that poured out the bowls in chapter 15 and 16. And we read that one of these angels, we don't know which one, he just says one of them, came over to him and talked with him and said, Come, I will show you. Now, there's only two times in Scripture where an angel comes to John and says, Come, I will show you. One is in this passage, and the other one is in Revelation 21, verse 9. In Revelation 21, 9, John says, uh, the angel comes to John and says, Come and see the bride. Come and see the bride, uh, the lamb's wife. And here it is, come and see the um, harlot. Uh, the great harlot who sits on many waters. So there's the contrast there that is being brought out by the writer, this contrast between, on the one hand, the church, and on the other hand, the the church which is presented as pure and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and the great harlot who sits on the waters. This idea of sitting on the waters is a phrase that comes out of the Old Testament that relates to Babylon itself, so the, the literal city of Babylon. So from the very beginning here, the great harlot is described in terms that take us to a literal Babylon. Two of the, the two key passages for, on, on the prophecies of the destruction of Babylon are found in Isaiah 13 and 14 and in Jeremiah 51. And in Jeremiah 51, 12 to 13, we read, Set up the standard on the walls of Babylon. Make the guard strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both devised and done what he spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. So this is addressing the completion of the prophecy on the destruction of Babylon. And then in verse 13, we read, O you who dwell by, that's the New King James translation of the a participle in the Hebrew, but the participle in the Hebrew doesn't mean by, which has the idea of being next to, but it has the idea of being upon. Now, that's interesting because there you have Babylon described as the place where, that is upon many waters. Now, most of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, Babylon is sitting out there in the middle of the Iraqi desert, and the only water that's around there is the Euphrates River. Except in the ancient world, they had devised a, a brilliant plan to irrigate the desert, and they had uh, vast canals that all uh, radiated out from the city of Babylon. And it was those canals that they used that took water off of the Euphrates that they used to uh, water the crops and to raise all of the food for the people in, in Babylon, and when you would look, at, if you were standing at a distance from Babylon, if you were standing, for example, in the east and the sun was setting on the west and the sun was reflecting off of the water of all of these canals, it looked as if the city 
actually sat on the water. And so this is a historical description uh, related to Babylon, that Babylon was a city that uh, sat on many waters. Now, if we go back and look at the first verse again, there we go. The angel says to John, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Now, here we're going to see uh, a series of words that are cognates of each other. Harlot is the feminine noun uh, porne, from which we get our word pornography. And the in the next verse, in verse 2, we're going to see that she's described as the one with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. And this is the verb porneo, same meaning, it's just a verb form of the noun. And then a little later on we read that about in the end of verse 2, the word is repeated again, and then down in verse 4 it's repeated again that uh, she has in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication, and on the forehead, a name is written mystery. The name is written, which is a mystery, the way it should be translated. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. There's the word again, uh, porne, and the abominations of the earth. So obviously this word group, porne and porneo, is important to understand. And it's important because a lot of people don't understand how this word is used in the scriptures. And so we'll take a look at that. But the main idea has to do with being unfaithful. We'll look at some verses in a little bit that have to do with how it's used in the Old Testament in various judgment passages where God is judging Israel for their spiritual unfaithfulness. And the core meaning of the word doesn't have to do with physical sexual immorality and neither does it have to do necessarily with with spiritual immorality. The core meaning of the word is to just be unfaithful, to betray a trust that has been given to someone. And so this often is, I think, in some of the divorce passages, it's, the word is often uh, taken in a, an extremely narrow sense, because the use of the word in most of Scripture is, is much broader. It has the, the, just the idea of being, uh, being unfaithful, uh, breaking a covenant. And that, of course, has great implications in this particular, uh, in this particular passage. So we read in verse 2 that this is the great uh, harlot who sits on many waters. Now, now, one more thing about the phrase sitting on many waters. Not only was that a historical uh, term that was used to describe the city of Babylon, but it is also a term that has meaning in light of what we have uh, been reading about this kingdom. Because as you see down in verse uh, 3, this woman is sitting on a scarlet beast that's full of names, blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And we've looked at that beast before, and that beast came up where? out of the water in chapter 12. And we went back to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had his vision of the four beasts that came where? Out of the waters, out of the sea. It's this picture of the uh, of the oceans that are tumultuous, that are chaotic, that are uncontrolled by man. And they represent the, here the nations of the earth and the fact that they are out from under the control of God and therefore they are in chaos and they are without order and they are disobedient. So she is described as this harlot is going to be a symbolic representation of the kingdom of the Antichrist. Her sitting on many waters also relates to the fact that she controls or influences uh, many nations, the Gentile kingdoms, are represented in this uh, imagery of the waters. Then verse 2 says, With whom, that is, with the, the great harlot, the kings of the earth committed fornication. Now, right away when you read that, you know this can't be talking about a physical act. It's talking about some sort of 
uh, spiritual act or it's talking about some sort of act of betrayal. So this, this, the woman, the harlot represents the, a system and it is this system that the kings of the earth, the leaders of the earth, this represents the rulers, spiritual rulers, political rulers, uh, all of the different uh, rulers and political leaders of the earth, that they have been unfaithful to God by following after this system. So she is the one with whom the kings of the earth betrayed God. We'll see where I get that idea. But that's the significance of it. They're betraying God. They are unfaithful to God. Remember, God created man for the purpose of ruling over the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. And man rebelled against God. And then we go through all the chapters from Genesis 1 to Genesis uh, 6 when there's the flood upon the earth. And then God establishes a, a new covenant, a revised form of the creation covenant with Adam. And man is once again to scatter and fill, multiply and fill the earth. And what happens? Under the leadership of Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10, they start building these cities in the area of the two rivers, Mesopotamia, between the Tigris and Euphrates. The first is Babel. The second is Nineveh. The, Babel's the, the capital of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, Nineveh is the capital of the horrific, evil Assyrian Empire. And so this area becomes the center of this, this rebellion against God. And so it's signified, as we'll see in Genesis chapter, chapter 11, with the creation of a kingdom whose sole purpose is to defy God. And so that's the act of betrayal, the breaking of the covenant with, with Noah. And so, and, and they, they are full of themselves. That's the significance of the imagery in the last part of the verse. The inhabitants of the earth, once again, we're talking about the earth dwellers. Same terminology used here, just translated a little differently. The inhabitants or the dwellers of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So it's using this imagery of drinking wine until a person just loses uh, their inhibitions, loses control, loses any sense of right and wrong. And that is the result of imbibing in the thinking of the, the, this whole system that has betrayed and rebelled against God. And the result of that leads to the ultimate destruction of the human race, or almost destruction of the human race in the tribulation uh, period. So the woman is described, you, the, this woman who sits on the many waters is described as the great uh, harlot, the great prostitute who sits on the many waters. Now, the, as I pointed out earlier, the word here for committing fornication is pornuo, indicating the practice of prostitution or sexual immorality, committing fornication in the physical sense. It's used in the Old Testament for spiritual infidelity, but the core meaning is simply betrayal or unfaithfulness, being unfaithful to a covenant. That's the core idea, being unfaithful to the covenant. So in verses 1 and 2, we see the angelic invitation. Now, you understand this is, not an, this is an invitation John can't refuse. The angel makes him an offer he can't refuse, and he has to follow the lead. So when the angel invites him to come and show, of course, he, he must go. And so 1 and 2 indicates the, inv- in, the invitation, and verse 3 uh, he goes with the angel to see the woman who is sitting over the many waters. And verse 3 reads, So he carried me away in the Spirit. And I think that has the idea of uh, by means of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who enables all of this to take place because it is the Holy Spirit who has the responsibility of overseeing revelation. That is the providence of the Holy Spirit to uh, oversee the process of, of revelation, just as God the Father is the author of the plan, and God the Son is the one who carried it out in terms of the outworking of creation, the outworking of the plan of salvation. And it is God the Holy Spirit who oversees the work of, of uh, inspiration 
and revelation and the uh, incorporation of that into the canon. So he carried the angel carries John away in and or by means of the spirit into the wilderness. And there he says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, as soon as we read this verse, it takes us back to other verses that we have read and studied in the past dealing with this description of the final form of the kingdom of man in history. Now, what do I mean by the kingdom of man? Well, we're going to go through this with the kingdom of Babylon, but starting in Genesis chapter 11, you have rebellious, arrogant, men under the leadership of Nimrod seek to establish a political kingdom in disobedience, direct disobedience to God's command. And these men are set on defining their lives and their associations and their society on their own terms apart from what God has described and what God has revealed and what God has mandated. And so... The kingdom of man begins there, and it begins to grow. And you see this conflict that it carries out throughout all of the Old Testament, the conflict between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. It's the conflict between divine viewpoint versus human viewpoint. It is the conflict ultimately between God and Satan. All of these are simply different ways of looking at the angelic conflict and how it is working out in human history. So the description of this beast is that the beast was full of names of blasphemy. In other words, uh, antagonism to God, dishonoring God, disrespectful of God, antagonism to God. And this beast is described as having seven heads and ten horns. Now, we have seen this same imagery used in passages such as Revelation 12.3 where it describes the dragon, and the dragon is Satan, the serpent of old, the dragon in his assault against the plan of God as uh, as depicted in, in the, the nation of Israel. Revelation 12.1 started off with the woman with the 12 stars around her head and the sun and the moon. That's a picture of, the, of Israel, and then she's going to uh, give birth to a male child who's destined to rule with a rod of iron. That, of course, is referring to the Messiah. And then as you get down to about Revelation 12.7 or 8, the, there's this battle that takes place in heaven between the dragon and his angels and Michael, and the dragon is cast out of heaven. That comes at the midpoint of the tribulation, and then the dragon begins to pursue the woman who is Israel into the wilderness for three and a half years. That's the second half of the tribulation. So that dragon is described in verse 3 with the same terminology as having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. What this depicts is that the real power... The, behind these uh, human kingdoms that make up the one kingdom of the Antichrist is Satan. Satan is the one who is uh, pushing the ideas, the agenda. He is the one who is influencing them, and he is the one who gives his authority, as we learn in Revelation 13, to both the uh, Antichrist, the first beast, and the false prophet, the second beast. Now let me pause there. So what we've seen here... We see in Revelation, you have to keep your scorecard handy. There are four beasts in Revelation. There are four beasts in Revelation. Now, the first beast is described in Revelation 13, 1 through 8, I believe, and that is, that is the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 13, 1 through 10. 1 through 10. Then the second beast is called the false prophet. That's how we usually refer to the second beast from Revelation 13, 11 to 18. Then we have another beast here. This is the beast that is that the woman rides. And it is clear from this passage when we get down to about verse uh, 8 that this beast is the kingdom, the final form of the kingdom of man. 
So don't get this confused. Some people read this, and every time they see beast, they think Antichrist. So you've got the first beast is the Antichrist. The second beast is the false prophet. The third beast is the beastly depiction of the uh, of the final form of the kingdom of man that has the characteristics of those four beasts that Daniel saw, the lopsided bear, the uh, the leopard with the uh, four heads, the uh, winged lion, and the, what was the last one, the beast that can't be described. Those four beasts all come together, according to Revelation chapter, chapter 13, 1 through 3, in this final form of the kingdom that is ruled by the Antichrist and, who, and, and that is empowered by, by Satan. So that's what's represented, Revelation 12, 3, the dragon represents this form of the kingdom. Now, guess what else? Dragons show up in different places, in different kingdoms, as symbols of kingdoms in the ancient world. You ever think, wonder, where in the world they get the idea of these dragons? You look at a dragon like that. You can see the, the artist's depiction up there, and it looks sort of like has an amazing resemblance to what we used to call a brontosaurus, but I think they just refer to them as sauropods now. They changed the name along the way. And um, these these dragons have an uncanny resemblance to various dinosaurs of the of the ancient world. Now, where did they come up with those ideas? If no human beings ever saw uh, dinosaurs, if dinosaurs died out billions and billions and billions of years before man ever uh, managed to uh, pop out of the slime, then. Where did they get this, this, this idea? The, the Chinese have depictions of dragons that go back into deep, dark antiquity. Uh, there are also many tales and stories of great heroes in England and in uh, Scandinavian countries defeating uh, dragons. And some of those have been traced out by a by an uh, English creationist indicating that these events probably happened since the time, some of these happened since the time of Christ, and he goes through an in-depth analysis of Beowulf showing that the uh, creature that Beowulf uh, kills has an, uh, the descriptions of this creature bear uh, a very close resemblance to a, a Tyrannosaurus rex. Bet you never thought of that before. Go back and reread. It's got little bitty weak hand, weak arms. He doesn't just slay the thing. He rips his little bitty arm off that really doesn't have much power. And, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting to go through all of these descriptions. But even in Babylon, they, uh, had uh, depictions of dragons. And this is a, uh, taken from one of the, uh, stone reliefs there. It's a dragon that is the sacred animal. For Marduk, who was the patron deity of Babylon, Marduk was also viewed as the uh, chief god who created all things, uh, that created the earth, and is the patron god of, of, uh, of Babylon. So that was Babylon's chief deity was represented by a dragon. They were also fond of lions as well, and this is some of the uh, uh, lions depicted on the uh, bricks on the walls of the Ishtar Gate that is seen in the in the museum in Berlin, but they also have dragons. And in this picture, you can, it doesn't come out quite as clear, but the one in the upper that's depicted on the in the upper panel is a dragon, uh, just like the one we we saw here. It's the same shape. You have a dragon at the top, and then there's a unicorn type horse uh, at the bottom. So we see that uh, this this picture of the dragon is is tied to Babylon, historic Babylon. Babylon was seen as a city that sits over the waters, and then we connect Revelation twelve three to Revelation thirteen one. And John says, "I uh, stood on the sand of the sea." And then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Again, we have that same depiction of water having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. This, of course, goes back to the Daniel passage in Daniel 7, verses 2 and 3, of the, the four beasts that came up 
uh, from the sea as the winds of heaven stirred up the great sea, the great sea picturing the Gentile nations in history. So from the very beginning, there's clear allusions by the phrases that are used here to uh, historic, historic Babylon. Now, verse 2 states that the harlot uh, committed fornication, caused the kings of the earth to betray, I'll put it that way because it communicates the idea a little better, betrayal from God, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk, uh, completely controlled, and lost all sense of inhibitions towards God, all sense of right and wrong by their uh, imbibing the thought system of the, really the cosmic system, the thinking of Satan. Now here we have verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness. I saw a woman on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now, I want to add something here that I'm not going to really address much as we go through this. In the history of Protestant interpretation of these passages, the woman who rides the beast has too often been depicted as the Roman Catholic Church. There's a great book called The Woman Rides the Beast that Dave Hunt wrote some years ago that is, is, is great to read. He deals a lot with the new, whole New Age system and lots of other uh, Eastern ideas and all of the different religious ideas that make up the cosmic system. The only thing Dave got wrong is that the woman who rides the beast isn't the Roman Catholic Church and it's not the Pope. But this has a rich tradition in Protestant theology and exposition going back to the uh, time of the Protestant Reformation to identify the, the, the Babylon, the end-time kingdom, as being dominated by the Pope, dominated by Rome, dominated by uh, Roman Catholic theology. Now, I do believe that elements of Roman Catholic theology may be brought out in order to bring, to be put together with elements from other uh, religious systems in order to, uh, to in order to uh, create this end time religious system. One of the threads that you see that runs through ancient religion as well as through modern forms of religion is this whole thread of a mother child cult. You have Isis and Osiris and uh, Venus and Cupid and various other representations, uh, Baal and, a, and his mother Astarte, where the sun is born and then dies in the fall and is brought back to life in the spring, and these kinds of things that run throughout many ancient world cultures. And it is uh, there's a book called uh, um, by Hislop, called uh, Mystery Babylon, and some of you may have read that. It's been around a long time, and he's one of the, uh, he wrote about the turn of the century, the last century, the, from the 19th to the 20th century. And he built his case that the great end-time religion was the Roman Catholic Church and was the, uh, the Pope was the great Antichrist, or the Antichrist would be a Pope, or something like that. But he has a lot of interesting things to say in there about the worship of Mary and, uh, and that the, the Mary, child, you know, baby Jesus imagery and the pictures that are used in the ancient world, many times coming out of the paganism, for example, in Egypt, they would take paintings and figures that originally were uh, Isis, the mother, and Osiris, the son, and they would just rename them Mary and Jesus. And you had the same kinds of things going on in many of the other other cultures. And so you had this uh, Mariolatry, this worship of Mary as the mother of God, come into Western Christianity. But you also have a uh, mother-child 
type of cult uh, in Islam and in various other world religions. And this can be a thread, some people believe, that sort of pulls a lot of these uh, religions together. We'll just have to wait and see how that uh, plays itself out. But what we see here is this woman who is depicted uh, she is the a representation, a vile representation of the best that human civilization has to offer. She is depicted in verse 4 as being arrayed in purple and scarlet. And I was reading, I think it was in uh, John Walvert's commentary on Revelation. And he talks about how purple and scarlet are often the robes of of the religious leaders in in the Roman Catholic Church. Now he's not as he's not going to interpret everything in terms of the Roman Catholic Church, but that's still that influence that wants to interpret these things in terms of a Western uh, false ecclesiology or false church. And I don't think that's what this is depicting at all. Purple and scarlet. We studied those words and those terms when we were studying the tabernacle. And we saw that the dye that was used to create purple and scarlet were made from the, from crushing various sea mollusks and taking the secretions from them and using that to create these dyes. And it would take tens of thousands of these little mollusks to make a significant amount of dye. Therefore, the dye was extremely expensive. And so the picture here is in the commercial and the economic prosperity of the kingdom, that she is arrayed in the most expensive of, 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 of garments, of clothes. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet. She's adorned with gold, precious stones, uh, pearls, Everything about her speaks of tremendous wealth and affluence, but that's all there is. She has pursued wealth and commercialism and commercial might over against a relationship with God. And because once you take God out of the picture, all that it's left is a worship of material things because without the immaterial, that's all that's left is material things. So the woman is depicted this way because she has all of the best that human civilization has to offer, but yet she is just pictured as beastly, as horrible, as uh, drunk. Uh, there is nothing attractive about her. That is God's picture. Just as he depicted these kingdoms in the past as beasts, in Daniel chapter 7, but looking at them from the human perspective, in Daniel chapter 2, we have the kingdoms represented with uh, the great idol and the, the head of gold and the chest of silver and the abdomen of brass with all these uh, fine metals. So that's how man looks at his kingdom as, as glorious, but God looks at the kingdoms of man as abominations, as, as just giving themselves to things that have no eternal value whatsoever. And then in verse 5 we read, And on her forehead a name was written, and this is the King James, King James and New King James translates it this way, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now the idea there is that uh, on her forehead there's this, this label. Just as you have the seal on the uh, foreheads of the of the 144,000, just as you have the mark of the beast on the foreheads and on the hands of the of the uh, uh, followers of the beast, here we have this woman has this uh, stamp on her forehead, and what it shows is what it's going to reveal is her essential character. But there's a little problem here. The problem is that in the, with the King James and New King James translators. Uh, they looked at the Greek and they saw the word musterion there, which doesn't have an article, it's just a noun, and they took it as part of the title, that the title for this kingdom is Mystery Babylon. And that is not how it should be translated. Uh, so we have two options. The top option here on the screen is from the King James Version or New King James Version, and the second example is the same verse, and that's taken from the New American Standard, and this is pretty much followed by 
uh, many modern translations, and I think it's an ac- uh, a much more accurate representation of the Greek. On her forehead, a name was written, a mystery. The term mystery in Scripture is from the uh, Greek word mysterion, which indicates something, some sort of unrevealed information or knowledge. And so there's something that is unrevealed, something that is uh, some knowledge about this kingdom that's not attainable other than through uh, supernatural means. So the best translation is to say that there's something about this kingdom that is a mystery. It is, uh, it has to do with unrevealed doctrine related to this kingdom. And another reason we can support this is because the phrase Babylon the Great is used three other times in Revelation without mystery in front of it. Revelation 14.8, Revelation 16.19, and Revelation 18.2. So she has this label which is going to describe her basic character. So we have to ask the question, what's so mysterious about Babylon? The word itself, mysterion, refers to a mystery, a secret. It's not a whodunit. You don't turn to the last chapter to find out uh, who committed the murder or something like that. It has the idea of a previous, some previously unknown or unrevealed truth. It's not mystical and it's not spiritual. It's not that there's some mystical or spiritual meaning here. That is a, a complete misuse of, of the Greek word. This is on her forehead, which labels or signifies her intrinsic character. And so we can conclude that the unrevealed matter that we're talking about here is the intrinsic character of the kingdom of man and that it's really not understood or perceived apart from special revelation. I mean, just think about it. The people that that you work with that are, have no knowledge of anything related to scripture or spiritual things, and you think about their value system and what they think makes a nation great, makes a civilization great, is the complete opposite of what the scripture says. The thing that they think makes people happy, that is the end of life, has, is just the opposite of what, of what scripture says. And so, this is indicating the fact that only through spiritual uh, perception, understanding of things through divine viewpoint, can we really perceive the evil nature of the kingdoms of man. Now, her title is Babylon the Great, which I believe refers to literal Babylon. And next, she is the mother of harlots. That is, that that all unfaithfulness toward God, if we're right in taking the word that way, All unfaithfulness to God has its source or root in the kind of thinking that characterized Babel, the founding of Babel under under Nimrod. Now, here's about three verses coming out of Isaiah and Jeremiah to illustrate how this concept of, of fornication or harlotry is used in the Scripture in terms to express unfaithfulness or betrayal to God. In Isaiah 121, there is an indictment of Jerusalem, how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. And so having an unjust legal system that has departed from spiritual, biblical absolutes, the absolutes of the law, is what? It is a violation of the covenant, a violation of the Mosaic covenant, and so they have become unfaithful. They have broken the Mosaic covenant. So that is the core idea here that, that, bar, that, that communicates that idea of, of um, infidelity. Another passage is in Ezekiel 16, 28 and 29. Ezekiel 16, 28 and 29. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. 
So here it has the idea, uh, again, of being unfaithful to God. God had told the uh, Israelites to trust in him and not to rely upon the Egyptians, not to enter into uh, treaties and negotiations with the Assyrians, but they failed to do that. They broke the covenant with God. Rather than trusting God, they trusted in their own efforts, their own uh, peace treaties, their own abilities to handle the situation, and so that is represented as as harlotry, as infidelity, as as fornication. Uh, you also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of of harlotry, or we could say you multiplied your acts of betrayal as far as the land of the traitor Chaldee. That's the Babylonians as they're uh, on the rise. And even then, God said, you were not satisfied. And then in Jeremiah 3, verse 6, we read, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, this is a good king, Josiah, this is about 620 to 625 B.C., Just he's the last good king, and after he died, it all um, went downhill very quickly. Uh, and he, king of, in, in Judah, that is, in the southern kingdom. Uh, the Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. So it was going up into the high place. This is where they had the worship centers for worshiping the idols, the prosperity gods and goddesses of the fertility religions. And so rather than being faithful and trusting in God to provide for all of the all the needs, the security, and and uh, the prosperity of Israel. They were looking to these other gods and goddesses, these false religious systems, in order to have those uh, those things established. And that's referred to as backsliding. It's referred to as harlotry. It is the breaking of a covenant. Now, how did all of this begin? It begins. Babel begins back in Genesis chapter ten. And I think that we have a few minutes left. I think that rather than going to this, I want to play a video for you. Uh, YouTube, several people have sent it to me. But the reason I've just been waiting to get into this chapter to, uh, to play this video because it represents how the, the trends of today, I'm not playing this because I'm for, for a political reason, I'm playing this because it shows how the trends of today are pushing us more and more towards a one-world, uh, one-world government. Globalism the, has been a big word in the 90s. Uh, Bush 41, Bill Clinton, uh, George Bush all talked a lot about globalization and uh, bringing the world together and all of these kinds of things, and it just gets pushed uh, along the way more, uh, more and more. So this is a – let me just have to see if anything works. There we go. This is uh, Lord Christopher Monckton, who's a climate change expert. He was addressing a group in Michigan, I believe, uh, just about three weeks ago on October the 14th. And this is uh, Minnesota. what Minnesota. Okay. This has to do with the uh, climate change elements within this treaty that is going to be uh, signed in Copenhagen in December. At Copenhagen, this December, we are away. A treaty will be signed. Your president will sign it. Most of the third world countries will sign it because I think they're going to get money out of it. Most of the left wing regimes around the world, like the European Union, will rubber stamp it. Virtually nobody won't sign it. I have read that treaty. And what it says is this. That a world government is going to be created. The world government actually appears as the first of three purposes of the new entity. The second purpose is the transfer of wealth from the countries of the West 
to third world countries in satisfaction of what is called coyly the climate debt because we've been burning CO2 and they haven't and we've been screwing up the climate. We haven't been screwing up the climate but that's the line. And the third purpose of this new entity, this government, is enforcement. How many of you think that the word election or democracy or vote or ballot occurs anywhere in the 200 pages of that treaty? Quite right, it doesn't appear once. So at last, the communists who piled out of the Berlin Wall and into the environmental movement and took over Greenpeace so that my friends who founded it left within a year because they'd captured it, now the apotheosis is at hand. They are about to impose a communist world government on the world. You have a president who has very strong sympathies with that point of view. He's going to sign. He'll sign anything. He's a Nobel Peace Laureate. Of course he'll sign it. And the trouble is this. If that treaty is signed, your constitution says that it takes precedence over your constitution. And you can't resile from that treaty unless you get the agreement of all the other states' parties. And because you'll be the biggest paying country, they're not going to let you out. So, thank you, America. You were the beacon of freedom to the world. It is a privilege merely to stand on this soil of freedom while it is still free. But in the next few weeks, unless you stop it, your president will sign your freedom, your democracy, and your prosperity away forever. And neither you nor any subsequent government you may elect will have any power whatsoever to take it back again. That is how serious it is. I have read the treaty. I've seen this stuff about government and climate debt and enforcement. They are going to do this to you whether you like it or no. But I think it is here, here in your great nation, which I so love and I so admire, it is here that perhaps at this 11th hour, at the 59th minute and the 59th second, you will rise up and you will stop your president from signing that dreadful treaty that purposeless treaty, for there is no problem with the climate, and even if there were, economically speaking, there's nothing we can do about it. So I end by saying to you the words that Winston Churchill addressed to your president in the darkest hour before the dawn of freedom in the Second World War. He quoted from your great poet Longfellow, Sail on, O ship of state. Sail on, O union strong and great. Humanity with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. Thank you. Now the only thing that I think he's got wrong as far as I've been able to ascertain is the Senate still has to confirm anything that is signed, if indeed it is signed. But when you take that, understanding what's going to happen in Copenhagen in a month, and you put that together with the fact that two weeks ago the uh, Irish just uh, voted to confirm this new constitution for the EU, which is going to give them a much more unified, make them more of a of a United States of Europe than they've ever been before, one constitution that's going to basically wipe out the sovereignty of all the individual nations in Europe. I'm not saying that this is anything related to the fulfillment of prophecy, but it continues to move us down the road towards what we see depicted in the end times in the tribulation period. And we are living in an era today that I think is as, as critical and as revolutionary as anything that happened in 1776 or that happened in 1860. And we have never, ever in the history of the world seen the kind of power shifts and moves going on globally, not just in the United States, but globally that we've, we see today. And we need to be in uh, real prayer about these things because uh, whatever happens, 
we as believers have to respond. We have to trust the Lord. We have to recognize the authorities that God has set over us. We need to pray for them, but we need to be ready because uh, the Lord's coming may be tomorrow. It may not be for another 100 years, but it could be tomorrow, and we need to be ready. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful we have the opportunity to study these things and to see the end times as they will play out and then to cast that over against trends that we see today, trends that have, they're not actually new, but they have reached a level of proportion, uh, an intensity today that we've never seen in human history as the powers in the, uh, in the world seek to push us more and more towards a one-world government, just a complete control of uh, the sovereignty of various nations, wiping out uh, historic nationalism, wiping out this historic distinction of nations and individual national constitutions and, and laws. And, Father, we pray that you would uh, just protect this nation, give our leaders wisdom, give our president wisdom, give uh, those who have his ear wisdom to uh, speak the truth and to challenge the assumptions that underlie these these agreements that we might not partake or participate in them. And as believers, we know that uh, we face more and more opposition in uh, the world around us, and we need to be faithful to you. We need to be faithful to your word, and we need to get our focus on that which has an eternal value and get it off of the uh, day-to-day details of life that so often distract us but have no lasting value. Father, we need to recognize more and more that we, we have been called as a people in the church to be a shining light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, and that we do that first and foremost through our uh, witness, through our witness of our life and witness of our lips as we communicate the truth of your word to those around us willing to take whatever opposition may come our way. And we pray that you would strengthen us in all of these things. In Christ's name, amen.